Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery, your host. Today, Groucho Marx. You know his face maybe almost as well as you know your own. There's that painted-on black mustache, the thick-rimmed glasses, the constant cigar, the pattern of conversation that runs circles around foils. I've sponsored your appointment because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. You can leave in a taxi. If you can't get a taxi, you can leave in a huff. If that's too soon, you can leave in a minute and a huff. You know you haven't stopped talking since I came here? You must have been vaccinated with a phonograph needle. When we think of Groucho Marx, we think giant in comedy. Was he funny? And what drove his humor? Those questions, along with a few others, drive Groucho Marx, The Comedy of Existence, a new examination by critic Lee Siegel. The book is out from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. And Lee Siegel joins us today in the studio to talk about it. Welcome, Lee, to Vox Tablet. Thank you. Great to be here. So why write a book about Groucho Marx after all these years? Well, I think that Groucho has been grossly misunderstood. You know, he's been turned into an icon. And by definition, an icon becomes an icon when everything that made the person an icon has been forgotten. Uh, So he's been flattened and caricatured as a kind of uh, cuddly uh, archetype of humor or more narrowly, Jewish humor. Uh, But I think there's a lot more bite, a lot more tension, a lot more depth and darkness to him uh, than is commonly understood now. And I think he was the most significant figure in comedy. I think he revolutionized comedy. How so? Well, he and his brothers were the first people to... to act in public as though they were acting in private. There, There's a, a, a seamlessness between their private selves and their public selves. And uh, I think that's fascinating because what we see now, of course, is the private collapsing into the public in just about every realm. And these guys were pioneers in that. So are you saying that, in fact, they weren't acting at all? I don't think they were acting, really. I, I, they grew up in a crazy uh, tenement apartment overcrowded in Yorkville, now now known as the Upper East Side. Uh, relatives coming and going. Uh, th- there were numerous uh, children and, and, and brothers, and uh, it was pure chaos. Uh, they walked out onto a street where people were speaking Spanish and Russian and Polish and German and the whole polyglot atmosphere, and they spent 15-plus years on the vaudeville circuit, which is really uh, puts you in a position of looking at society uh, from the bottom up, and it is a life of pure chaos. So by the time they broke through uh, and appeared before the cameras in the movies that have made them famous and that we love so much now, they were used to living in their private lives uh, as we see them on camera. And uh, no, I, I don't think they were acting very much. Assuming that it's been a while since our listeners have seen a Marx Brothers movie, I wonder if you could just sort of walk us through who the different brothers were and what role they played in the kind of uh, dynamics of the group. Uh, well, uh, Groucho was a sort of a disaffected intellectual. He he, he wanted to be a literary man uh, above above all. Uh, Harpo uh, was a kind of a waif in life, a kind of a helpless waif who drifted along on the manipulative wills of other people. And so he plays, and he was also uh, brutalized by a, a trio of Irish bullies when he was a kid. They kept throwing him out of a out of a window in school. And the earlier biographers play this up as being just yet one more merry chapter in their. Ant- 
authentic lives. But that's that's a that's a, a, a very traumatic thing to happen to a kid. So his 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 muteness. It's very funny and all of that, or can be funny, uh, but it's also muteness is the product of trauma, and that's what that gestures uh, uh, towards. And uh, Chico, in in real life, Chico was a kind of pathological gambler and pathological womanizer. He spent his honeymoon night with another woman, and he was a a, 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 a con man, uh, and that's exactly the character that he plays in in the movies. So they're really acting themselves; they're enacting their their own lives. Let's talk a little bit more about their background. Were they particularly religious? I mean, what was the kind of Jewish milieu out of which they sprung? No, they weren't religious at all. Uh, the, their father uh, was a kind of a ne'er-do-well tailor. Uh, the mother was the son of, of vaudeville performers uh, in Europe. They they weren't very Jewishly identified in the religious sense. In the cultural sense, of course, they are saturated with Jewishness, the, the wryness, the irony, the sense of social displacement, the almost reflexive descent from every stable social structure that was out of reach for them as the children of, of almost impoverished immigrants. All that we think of as being culturally Jewish, certainly. Did you grow up watching the Marx Brothers? When I was a, I was a very uh, kind of sickly kid. I had the lower respiratory illnesses of a romantic temperament. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time laid up in bed with bronchitis, pneumonia, and things like that, and flu. And I watched a lot. I read a lot of books, and I watched a lot of TV. And a lot of what I watched was the Marx Brothers. And I think, especially when you're lying prone and you're sick and feverish, uh, you're kind of immobilized. Uh, there's something exhilarating, especially exhilarating and liberating uh, about about these guys. So yes, I, I grew up watching them among, among many other comedians. Yeah. What is your favorite sketch of theirs, or your most uh, abhorred? <laughs> Well, the most abhorred is at the end of Horse Feathers, where they, the three of them jump on to this young woman, and it's a kind of gang rape, and it's it's sort of the epitome of, of this relentless misogyny of theirs, and I, I find it unbearable to watch. Uh, my favorite bit is that the, my favorite movie is Animal Crackers, where Groucho plays a, a legendary African explorer named Captain Spaulding, who, of course, is a fraud, like 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 all the respectable, distinguished uh, personas he inhabits. Uh, and Spaulding comes to a, a party given given by a socialite played by Margaret Dumont to to, to celebrate to celebrate his uh, heroic feats as an explorer. And at one point she says to him, Captain Spaulding. Captain Spaulding, you stand before me as one of the bravest men of all time. So he stands before her and says, All right, I'll do that. <laughs> uh, and I, I love that because it's, it's, it's it, for once, it's not insulting her as a woman. Uh, and it's just, it, it stands, stand, uh, the word stand on its head. It deflates, uh, you know, kind of heroic notions of life that, that usually are self-congratulatory. Uh, um, you know, people sometimes like uh, Margaret Dumont in this character will... They they will uh, exaggerate uh, the, the, all the heroism and nobility and lofty ideals in life in order to flatter their own uh, virtue, and it just it's got everything in it, and it's a great line, and the face he makes, and the way he moves his body when he stands before her, uh, it, I, that that's my favorite moment, I think. One of Groucho's most famous lines, which Woody Allen made even more famous, is "I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member." In the book, you argue that people tend to misinterpret that. Explain what you mean. Right. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, you're absolutely right, was Woody Allen who, who really immortalized that line in uh, Annie Hall. 
uh, and he presented it as the epitome of Jewish self-loathing. You know, I'm 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 such a horrendous person that anybody that would want me is not worth etc. That's not at all what the line meant. Uh, Groucho was indeed invited to a highfalutin club uh, in in out in Beverly Hills. Uh, and he always wanted to be, as I said, a literary man. He arrived at this club with uh, high hopes, expected to be surrounded by illustrious figures who would talk about Chaucer and Milton and Shakespeare with him. And instead, as he writes, he found a bunch of guys uh, gambling and drinking and smoking and on the phone to each other's wives, sort of philandering, which was exactly the situation of his uh, the apartment uh, where he grew up. His father was a great philanderer and gambler and smoke drinker and all of, all of that. So he was he was appalled. He expected to to be rewarded uh, by reaching the upper echelon of society. Instead, he finds himself right back in the circumstances he left. So he says that he tries to strike up a conversation with a, a member there who who uh, Groucho describes as a, a as a barber, uh, doubtful, uh, and he tries to talk to the guy about Chaucer. And instead, the guy turns to him and starts complaining about the quality of the new members. The quality is getting more and more inferior. Well, this was just too much for a guy who spent 15 years on the vaudeville circuit, and though he's reached the top of his profession, still doesn't think all that highly of himself. Uh, so he goes home, and he writes his famous uh, uh, resignation letter and says, I, I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member, but not from an attitude of inferiority, but from an attitude of superiority, but he adopts the sort of self-effacing, self-deprecating tone of an aristocrat. That, 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 that's the sto- true story behind that line. It's got nothing to do with Jewish self-loathing. And how did it come to be so understood as a self-loathing barb? Because that's how Woody Allen presents it in in, in Annie Hall, uh, and after that, everybody uh, uh, regarded the line as that. Uh, on top of that, uh, uh, Jews themselves, uh, Ruth Weiss, in in her book on Jewish humor, uh, are are def- define Jewish humor uh, as a product of 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 an inferiority complex or self loathing, and that comes out of Freud uh, 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 in his jokes in the unconscious. That's how he characterizes the origins of Jewish humor. But that had everything to do with the Central European Jewish mindset. That had everything to do, to do with Freud seeing his father uh, humiliated by a bunch of anti-Semitic bullies on a Viennese street and not answering back, which mortified him for life. And uh, that created Freud's uh, uh, impression uh, of, of Jewish uh, self-loathing. So you add that to Woody Allen's interpretation of the line, and you get this, this view of Jewish humor as, 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 as having its source in, in, in self-hatred. And I, I, I just don't see that at all. And I spend a chapter sort of trying to refute that in the, in the book. Well, tell us, if it's not uh, born of self-loathing, uh, what is Jewish humor born of and what makes it different from humor in general? Well, I'm not so sure Jewish humor is different from humor in general, but there is a tincture of of, of wry, ironic dissent uh, and a kind of instinctive undermining of high ideals uh, in Jewish humor. But all humor is deflating, but it's done with a certain type of Jewish irony. But it goes back to the Bible, you know, and the, the Bible is the only uh, sacred scripture that I know of that has one sacred book uh, satirizing the other sacred books, right? The Book of Jonah is a satire on the other prophetic books. I can't think of another religion that 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 has that. We touched on this earlier, the question of misogyny in Groucho's humor. And I wonder, uh, was that unique to him or was that really just a, a facet of the era? I mean, you mentioned in the book Henny Youngman's famous, famous line, take my wife, come on, take her. It seems like that was just in the ether. 
Well, it was in the Jewish ether. It's a, it's a sad fact of life that this is really a, a, a Jewish a characteristic of the Jewish sensibility of, of that era and of, of mid-century uh, Jewish comedians, not to mention Jewish novelists. Um, and it's unfortunate, and it's 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 something I find uh, almost unbearable uh, in in their movies. The the, the constant attacks uh, on Margaret Dumont's femininity and on her female figure and 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 all of that. I just I I, I really can't bear it, especially now that I have a young daughter. Um, and uh, I I explain it in the book. I I think I try to account for it, um, but I I can't excuse it. And and I think I think it makes them part of the reason women don't like them now, and it's part of the reason they're not all that funny these days. You also write in the book that their humor, the Marx Brothers' humor, was radical partly because it was so amoral. How do you mean? Well, people like to present them in a kind of a positive uh, context, to imbue them with all these sort of virtuous qualities. They stood up to power. They were uh, defiant of power and and wealth and uh, clueless wealthy people and so on. I don't think that's what was going on at all. They they were defiant of everyone. They tried to tear down everyone. They couldn't bear other egos. They couldn't really bear other people. They were pure misanthropes. Uh, you know, duck soup is always trotted out as a great uh, satire on war, but but I think duck soup is is amoral. It's not a satire on. It's a satire on everything. War, sure, but everything. There's a scene in it where the uh, brothers, uh, Chico and, and and Harpo, humiliate for no reason at all and abuse an, an innocent lemonade vendor. He's not rich. He's just kind of an ordinary guy. He does nothing to provoke them. Uh, but they, they, they abuse him, and at the end, the Harpo cuckolds the man in the man's own bed and emerges, emerges on a white horse, sort of glowing uh, with with vitality. Uh, maybe if you try really hard, you can find... I mean, what, he's on the white horse, what? Is that a satire on Mussolini? I, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's... They, they just... Because they had such a weak father, they grew up, who was also puffed up, had a puffed up conception of himself, they grew up with a natural contempt for the powerful, but also a natural contempt for, for the powerless. And that's what makes them amoral. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, I'm saying, but I'm saying that they're not the cuddly, uh, virtuous apostles of speaking truth to power that they're often, often presented as. In writing this book, I assume you must have spent countless hours rewatching their material. Given your reservations about their work, what was that like to sort of immerse yourself so much in this stuff that isn't necessarily that funny, that is in many ways offensive? Well, I, uh, as I say in the book, I, I don't, I don't. I, the book is not written in a, a negative spirit. I, I came to relish the spectacle of these three men following their own reflexes and instincts and impulses in whatever situation they found themselves. I, I just came to see that it was something beyond humor. Uh, that, 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 that just making conventional comedy was not what they were doing. Uh, they were doing something else, something far more radical. Uh, and to see the spectacle of... It's like watching an animal that doesn't know it's being watched. There's something uncanny about that. And, and there is something liberating uh, about seeing people do whatever they want, surrounded by social boundaries and social prohibitions. There's a, there's a catharsis to that. Uh, it elicits the biological response of laughter, because that's what you often do when you're surprised or shocked. But it's not exactly comedy. It's not exactly funny. Uh, so uh, watching their movies again was was a revelation. 
but I also found, you know, you have you, you have a child. You you might find that you you love your children no matter what. Uh, but there are often times when you don't love other people's children. Uh, <laughs> so half the time when I was watching them, they were my children, and half the time they were other people's children. Uh, and I think that that's a kind of an interesting tension in their work that never gets talked about. Groucho doesn't come off as a very appealing person in your book. What is sympathetic about him? Well, I think like all comedians uh, and like like most actors and artists, he had a real sense of kind of the, the bruise uh, at the heart of the world. Uh, I talk about an interview he did with William F. Buckley, which no one else has talked about, where uh, Buckley asks Groucho, as uh, if the world is a funny place, and Groucho, who by that point in his eighties, he says, "No, I don't think it's a funny place. People are struggling, people are starving. I, I don't think the world is a funny place." Uh, and I think this is reflected in, in certain moments in, in his films. Um, and I, I, I think that th- that is the positive thing about Groucho. I, I, I think he, uh, at times, uh, felt this. Uh, never forgot that he's. He, spent years on the vaudeville circuit looking at society from the bottom up, and he had a real solidarity at moments with, with people who were also at the on the bottom, but at moments that, that just doesn't exist. He wasn't a very nice man. He, he was a real piece of work. He drove three of his wives to alcoholism. Uh, he was very abusive and a lot of uh, verbally abusive. At one point on You Bet Your Life, he has his teenage daughter on. He humiliates her. You know, he's not a, he wasn't a nice guy. Um, why should he be? You know, he's a comedian. <laughs> Are the Marx Brothers at all relevant to comedy today? Yeah, I I, uh, I think every uh, just about every comic comes out out of them. You know, you, I was watching Amy Schumer's Trainwreck again the other night, and at one point she she says says to to her uh, boyfriend, she says, "Why why why would someone like you want to be with someone like me?" Uh, well, notwithstanding what I said about the the resignation letter earlier that's that that's a continuation of Groucho's line not wanting to belong to a club etc uh, and in fact uh, Amy Schumer's character in that movie is very much like like Groucho truth uh, truth compulsive right tearing everything down saying whatever comes to her to her mind so i think uh, in Louis CK who some of whose routines are uh, really go way beyond beyond even tasteless right uh, shock uh, beyond shocking um you know, Groucho's right there. He 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 paved the way. Though Groucho, who was somewhat priggish, uh, certainly would not have liked Louis C.K. And being a misogynist, he probably wouldn't have liked Amy Schumer uh, either. But but without Groucho, I I don't know if he would have even had them. Is there a bit you'd like us to go out with? Uh, the scene in, in Coconuts when the bellboys come to Mr. Hammer, who is the owner of the Hotel de Coconut, and they ask to get paid. That's a great scene. That's uh, there's so much stuff going on in that scene. Uh, th- it would be great. We haven't been paid in two weeks, and we want our wages. Wages? You want to be wage slaves? Answer me that. No. No, of course not. But what makes wage slaves? Wages. I want you to be free. Remember, there's nothing like liberty, except colliers in the Saturday Evening Post. Be free, my friends, one for all and all for me, and me for you, and three for five, and six for a quarter. Lee Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Lee Siegel writes about culture and politics. He is the author of the new book, Groucho Marx, The Comedy of Existence. It's out now from Yale University Press. Go get yourself a copy. 
We would love to hear from you listeners. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. We will respond. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. As ever, we thank you for joining us, and please join us again next time.